something really big happened. Any guesses? <laughs> Not my birthday. No, no. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Uh, but but uh, it's actually July 21st that uh, Neil Armstrong uh, stepped onto the moon for the first time 50 years ago. And, uh, of course, he made that uh, well-known comment. Well, much disputed comment perhaps is better. One small step for man, or was it actually a man? Uh, one giant leap for mankind and stepped onto the surface of the moon. Well, 50 years. To uh, put that in a little perspective, Ruth Cummings was 47. <laughs> and a number of you here hadn't even been thought of uh, at that point. And to put it in a different perspective, I was 10. So there you go. 50 years. 50 years zooms by quickly. And so today we're looking at this movie. Uh, we were put or pointed in this direction by Stephen Gomez because uh, he had figured out that this weekend kind of coincided with the 50th anniversary and uh, he liked the movie. So uh, thank you, Stephen, for, uh, for leading us in this direction. And First Man, for those of you that managed to see it, is uh, it's a good movie, I think. It's a thoughtful movie and it tries to put us in the shoes of Neil Armstrong and uh, get a little sense of who the man was uh, who went on that uh, epic journey uh, and stepped out uh, onto a different planet for the first time in human history, which is a cool thing. I mean, there's no doubt about it, it's cool. So our series, if you're visiting this morning, you're thinking, why are these people talking about movies in church? The, the answer to that is that this is our silver screen series, and each summer for the last six years, we've taken a few Sundays and looked at movies uh, from the perspective of the Christian faith, trying to say, well, okay, here's the movie. How does it help us in our understanding of life? And how do we critique the story, the uh, adventure from a Christian perspective? And... Uh, try to tie that together. So that's the challenge. It's not the usual starting place for us, obviously, but it's a good place. And over the years, I've, uh, I've found that it's taken us to places that we might not otherwise have gone uh, as we explore these stories together. So one of the obvious things to do as uh, we, we start this, uh, this discussion of First Man... Actually, how many people here did get to see it? Uh, I see a... I see a fair, fair few. Good, thank you. Uh, so, um, one of the things, the places to start here is to ask the obvious question. Like, why go to the moon in the first place? Right? I mean, that, that's a question. It's a dusty chunk of rock uh, without an atmosphere. Uh, no recognized water source, although there may be ice at the poles. That's a suspicion. Uh, but that's about what we know. And the likelihood of it ever being a place that could support human life in the event of trouble on Earth uh, was already known to be zero before they even thought about going there. So, but, of course, this was the 1960s, and the 1960s was different. The Cold War was at its height. 
The American economy was belting along in a massive post-war consumerist expansion phase. And, horror of horrors, the Russians had managed to get a man into space. So, that, that was the context out of which, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy had this to say. He said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Well, he did actually say it like it was uh, because it did become the great project, uh, America's great project of that decade. It was the crazy dream that would glorify American scientific and industrial supremacy. And he was really right about the cost. This one would cost the US an estimated Get this, $25 billion between 1961 and 1972, uh, which in today's dollars is worth more than $100 billion and actually represented 10% of US GDP during that period. So this was not cheap. And that's not counting the Russian spending, because the Russians were racing too, and they were pouring money into this, uh, or the some 31 cosmonauts and astronauts who died in the process of realizing this dream. So, I mean, from a, any kind of perspective, I think it's worth asking, was this money well spent? And were there not other great projects that could have been undertaken that might have made much more of a difference down here on planet Earth? Now, some of you will come back and say, ah, oh, we have duct tape. Well, yes, it's true, but, but, but really, I mean, you know, there are, there are bigger fish to fry, perhaps, and it was certainly a lot of money. But anyway, that's, the, that's, a, that's a question I just float out there at the beginning. But if the motivation behind this whole space race thing uh, is suspect, shall we say, the challenge and the adventure of the project were something else again. Neil Armstrong was a test pilot and an aeronautical engineer who won his way into NASA's Gemini and Apollo space programs by virtue of his ability to keep a cool head in a crisis, and the movie depicts some of the crisis moments he endured. Now, I have absolutely no shame in admitting that if any one of the incidents depicted in the movie had happened to me, I would have had um, no problems, no qualms about deciding that I would never try for space again. Uh, that's probably because I'm a wimp. But Armstrong was made of tougher stuff than me, and he not only survived kind of bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and heading off in a different direction, uh, getting into a kind of near-fatal spin uh, in the Gemini link-up uh, module, uh, and, uh, and having uh, incredible adventures. Uh, 
he, he did it and then went back. Uh, so, I mean, kudos to him. He, he was a brave, brave man, uh, and he kept a very cool head uh, and did the right thing uh, at the right time. And uh, for that, he was uh, eventually given this uh, huge responsibility and opportunity uh, of being the first man to actually walk on the moon. So um, th there, there, there's lots of stuff in the movie that, that shows us his experiences uh, and, and also the losses. Uh, he must have been affected uh, by the, the death of the three uh, Apollo 1 uh, astronauts who were his friends. Uh, who died on the launch pad in a, in a fire. Uh, and that must have been sobering to everyone in the program as they realized the kind of risks they were all taking. So, uh, but all of that kind of built up for him to the uh, prestigious Apollo 11 mission that eventually would land him on the moon. Uh, and it was a glorious undertaking, and his name rightly goes into history as the first man uh, to actually step on the moon. Very cool. But while the moon landing is the, the main focus of the movie, for me, much of the interest in it is to do with Neil himself and the reactions and responses that he has to tragedy and also to triumph. Uh, and in, in this, he becomes a kind of everyman figure, a mix of brilliance, courage, grief, loss, and I think for me, as I reflect on the movie, repressed emotion. Uh, is really the kind of salient feature of this man, at least as he's depicted in the movie. Because the movie takes us, zeroes in, if you like, on the loss of Armstrong's baby daughter, Karen, who died of a brain tumor uh, at the age of two. Uh, and the one moment where we see him truly expressing his grief is at the reception after her funeral, but he only succumbs to tears when he is alone. And his grief all seems to be kind of locked inside, suppressed, uh, and becomes the kind of foundational substrata of his life. Because later in the movie, we see him actually on the moon with a little bracelet with Karen's name on it uh, that he leaves on the moon. And uh, grief seems to just uh, have surrounded this man all the way through. Uh, his best friend and his wife talk at one point in the movie and admit to each other that Neil never talks about Karen. And uh, there's a sadness there that uh, in, for all his brilliance, he, he's, he's a very private and alone figure dealing with a great loss in his life. Uh, there's a moment in the movie where he's asked at the application board for the uh, Apollo program whether he's been affected by the death of his daughter. And he replies, it would be unreasonable to imagine that I hadn't been affected. But he doesn't go any further than that uh, and give any clue about what the effects might have been on him. So it's very kind of cerebral, but it's non-emotional, and perhaps you need to be non-emotional to travel in a spacecraft and go to the moon. I don't know, but it's, it's kind of there as a subtext of the movie. But there are effects on him, clearly, and some of those seem to come in his marriage. The moments of deep togetherness seem to be fleeting, and most notable is his escape into his work. He's back at his desk right after the funeral to the surprise of his colleagues and superiors. 
after the death of the three friends uh, on the Apollo 1 uh, rocket, he flees the community of grieving astronauts and heads into the garden alone. When one of his friends pursues him out there, reminding him that others, particularly his wife and family, need him, his reply is, do you think I'm standing out here alone because I need someone to talk to? The friend walks away. I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, right. So it perhaps should be no surprise to us that in real life, his marriage fell apart after he returned from the moon. A victim perhaps of grief and perhaps of the PTSD, which I think uh, would have probably been a reality in his life after some of his near-death experiences in the rockets. So I'm left by the movie in this place of kind of wondering and sadness because I feel like there's an emotional journey being hinted at that is not fully realized or developed and there's a grief and a sadness that for all the journey and for all the success and the glory uh, leaves a man alone, isolated and just sad. So how does all that in the movie speak to us as those who want to be followers of Jesus? Well, King Solomon, reputedly the wisest of Israel's kings, has left us the gloriously bleak book of Ecclesiastes. He starts off with a proposition that everything is meaningless and asks what a man gains from all his labor at which he toils under the sun. We might uh, paraphrase that to toils under the moon. Uh, in the passage we have read from uh, chapter 1, he contrasts the apparent solidity of the earth with its cycles of sunrise and sunset, the changing of the seasons and the water cycle that sees the rain fall, flow down to the seas and return and go round again. And he sees all that and he contrasts that with the rapid passing of the generations, how quickly time flies. And he says that all things are wearisome. The eye never has enough of seeing or the ear of hearing. What has been will be again and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun or even the moon. And while it could be argued that perhaps the one event that was new under the sun was a manned rocket coming out from planet Earth and reaching the moon, I mean, that was new. No, that had never been done before. That had never been seen. In the light of the last 50 years, has it really changed anything? I mean, how meaningful was it really? And for all the effort and all the expense that was poured into the program, what are we left with? Did it change anything? Has it been the rescue of the human race in case planet Earth uh, gets so polluted that no one can live in it anymore? Hardly. And we're left with that great question, well, what's the meaning of all this then? How, does, how do we find meaning in a system that is so much bigger than us and where work, for all its demand on us, does not deliver anything more than 
passing glory, which quickly gets forgotten. Having said all that, I don't think that Ecclesiastes is the last word on life and its meaning. Jeremiah, who I think was a wiser man than Solomon in many ways, has this to say in Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So for me, this is actually the fitting critique, the yardstick by which we can measure the space race and all the hubris that surrounds it. Where John F. Kennedy sought glory and fame for his people in their scientific strength, wisdom, and wealth, the King of Kings reminds us that if we really want to shoot the moon, the truly great journey of adventure is knowing God Himself. Knowing Him particularly as the one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Now, if such knowing is possible, and of course it's the whole of the New Testament particularly that suggests strongly that it is, then the ultimate measure of our life and work is not the glory it generates in itself, but the extent to which it has led us into relationship with God Himself. And it's in Him that true meaning and purpose reside, and nowhere else. So the sadness that I feel, having watched First Man, is that Neil Armstrong, as far as we know, never really found his true purpose or the healing that he needed in relationship with the God who spoke the universe into being. And I'm kind of sad about that, right? I'm sad because it's so easy to get caught up in some great project and get lost in it to the point that we lose sight of what's really important. And I think that happened for Neil Armstrong. It didn't happen for everyone who went into space. Gene Cernan, who is the subject of the movie Last Man, because he was the last man to walk on the moon, uh, 41 months after uh, Neil Armstrong was there, uh, Gene Cernan was part of uh, another team that went up there. He said this, and I think it's a good quote to end on, and uh, a reflection, really, about where our adventures can take us and how we can uh, understand the world and the marvels of the universe. He, this is Gene Cernan commenting. I felt that I was literally standing on a plateau somewhere out there in space. 
a plateau that science and technology had allowed me to get to. But now, what I was seeing, and even more important, what I was feeling at that moment in time, science and technology had no answers for. Literally no answers, because there I was. And there you are. There you are, the earth. Dynamic, overwhelming. And I felt that the world had just too much purpose, too much logic. It was just too beautiful to have happened by accident. There has to be somebody bigger than you and bigger than me. And I mean this in a spiritual sense, not in a religious sense. There has to be a creator of the universe who stands above the religions that we ourselves create to govern our lives. So there's a man whose experience of the beyond, of getting outside of planet Earth, took him directly to an awareness and an understanding that there has to be someone bigger than all this. And there has to be a great mind. A mind who the New Testament tells us is knowable. The Apostle John reminds us that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, and he's speaking about Jesus here, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. And so Jesus is the place we need to look for that relationship with God, for that knowing of God that gives us the perspective and the ability to stand in a confused and confusing world and live with integrity, emotionally, spiritually, physically, intellectually, that is a place of hope and purpose. And so, First Man, great movie, glad I saw it, helpful, a reminder of events past, but it somehow brings me back to Jesus and the place of health and hope that only rests in Him, in Him alone. We're going to take communion together, being reminded that this is the center, the life, death, death and resurrection of Jesus is the place to go for understanding and for a knowing of God and His love for us. Stephen, coming up. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, this is indeed the center. Uh, and so, this morning, Granville Chapel, we celebrate the love of God by sharing communion together. And we share this uh, with Christians all over the world, 
on every continent. And 50 years ago, uh, Buzz Aldrin, the other guy, uh, took communion on the moon. So as we share in communion together, we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus offers forgiveness and a new life for all who would turn to him. Scripture reminds us that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here at Granville, we welcome all followers of Jesus to join us in communion. And if today you want to make a new decision to follow Jesus or recommit, then you are welcome to join us. Uh, in celebrating the forgiveness, the mercy, and the love of God. And since it's a community experience, we invite you to serve the person sitting next to you. And as you pass on the bread, you can say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And as you pass the tray of cups, you can say, this is the blood of Christ shed for your sins. Uh, and if you need them, there are gluten-free wafers in the center of the plate of bread. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. So we come to your table as we are, with all our joys and hopes, our struggles and brokenness, our praise and thanks, but always as people who need you. You are the vine, and we are the branches. When we abide in you, and you in us, we will bear fruit. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So whether we walk in desolate places or beautiful gardens, may we always walk with you. And may we walk in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The ushers can come forward.
Father in heaven, we surrender to 